Thank you, Debbie and Eddie, Randy and Brian. Thank you for your messages already this morning. You know, today we begin a, a new series, and we call it Practical Christianity. And I gotta say, this is one of my favorite books of the Bible that we're going to be going through, the book of James. In fact, when I first started getting involved in leadership and, uh, and helping lead a ministry at my home church, this was the very first Sunday school lesson I taught was on the book of James. But in fact, I actually decided to teach the entire book of James in one Sunday school lesson. We went about an hour and a half, and I don't know if anybody got anything out of it or not, but everybody was ready to get up and move around when we were done. Now, that was 20-so years ago. We're not going to do that here today. Don't worry. I'm not giving you a warning. It's not going to be an hour and a half sermon. We're going to spread this out over a few weeks. But I love the book of James because sometimes when we talk about faith and we talk about you know these huge concepts about trusting God, learning to listen to God, being led by the Holy Spirit, things like that, these are sort of like big concepts and it's hard to maybe put them into everyday practice. How do we actually do this? Well, the book of James is all about that. It's all about making faith real in everyday life. And that's why I just I love reading through and applying and studying the book of James. Um, it's very, very practical. And so today we're just going to start in James chapter 1, and we're going to look at how to have a proper perspective in our trying times. Now, when we say trying times, what are we talking about? We're talking about those difficult times in life that are real tests of our faith. When we face hardship, when we face disappointment, when we face uncertainty, things like that that make us really put our faith to the test. Is our faith really going to sustain us in this storm, in this, cir- this circumstance? We want to make sure that it, it works. We want to test our faith's awesome authenticity and if it's enough to get us through life's hardships. Now think about this. When you're sick and you go to the doctor, you have a certain expectation that the doctor is going to be able to treat whatever it is that's made you sick. He's going to offer you some medicine or prescribe some sort of treatment or do something, at least, that's going to help you to feel better. You know, there was a man who went to the doctor, and he had this horrible cold, and he couldn't shake it. And he went to the doctor, and the doctor gave him some pills and said, take a few of these, take them for a week, go home, you'll be fine. Well, the man did that, he went home, still didn't get any better. So he came back to the doctor a second time. And the doctor said, okay, I'm going to give you a shot. This will make you better. So the doctor gave him a shot, went home a few days later, still wasn't any better. So he came back to the doctor for the third time, and the doctor said, okay, we're going to try this. What I want you to do is I want you to go home, take a nice hot bath. Just soak in the tub if in the nice hot water. And then when you're done with your bath, don't dry off. Just get up, open all the windows, and let the cold breeze just wash over you. And the man said, well, doctor, if I do that, then I'm going to catch pneumonia. And he said, good, I know how to treat pneumonia. (laughs) See, if our doctor asked us to do something crazy that didn't make sense, we would probably ask one of the very first questions is, will this work? And sometimes when we talk about faith, and actually a lot of times when we talk about faith, we're talking about things that don't make sense to our human mind, to our normal thinking, and and certainly don't make sense to the outside world who's looking at things from a different perspective. And so one of the questions we ask is, will our faith work? And that is the message of the book of James. 
this morning we're going to look at. The message of the whole book of James is this, showing how our faith works. See, James doesn't just deal with concepts. He deals with application, with real life, making sure that this is something that you can take home and you can do every single day. And so that's what we're going to talk about here today and the next several weeks. Would you pray with me? Lord, we do thank you that you give us a faith that does work, that is real, that is authentic, that guides us every single day. And so, God, I pray that as we open up your word and we read through James and we study it and we apply it, that we can see the areas in our life that we can turn over to you and make our faith come to life and be more real and more authentic and more genuine in each and every day. Thank you for those that are here, and I pray a blessing on us as we study your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Genuine faith shines through when we face hardship. It shines through. That's where it's really tested. And that is the context of this whole first chapter of James. In fact, let's just dive right in. James chapter 1, verse 1, says this. James, a servant of God and the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes scattered among the nations, greetings. Now, if you're like me, and you're like most people, you probably read these opening scriptures and you just kind of fly right through them. You know, this is just an introduction. James is just saying who he is, who he's talking to. But there is really a lot to be gleaned from just this one verse here. So let's talk with the very first word there, James. Who is James? Well, there were a few Jameses in the New Testament church that were leaders. There was uh, the, the apostle James, the brother of John, was one of the three that went up to the Mount of Transfiguration, was one of Jesus' closest friends. But he... It's probably not the James we're talking about here. He was killed a martyr's death very early on. This James that we're talking about here is most likely Jesus' half-brother. This James was a leader in the early church in Jerusalem. He helped, you know, be one of the pinnacles, one of the pillars of that church. And uh, he started off not being a believer. In fact, Jesus' whole family kind of thought he was crazy while he was here on earth. But he talks about how he had this encounter with the risen Savior, and that helped him believe. So this is probably James, the half-brother of Jesus, who was a leader in the New Testament church. It says, Servant of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes scattered among the nations. Now, who are the twelve tribes? Well, typically when we talk about twelve tribes, we're talking about Israel. And who James is specifically addressing here are the Jewish Christians who have been scattered among the nations. Now, what is this scattering that we're talking about? It could just be that they've dispersed. But most likely what he's referring to is the early persecution of the church. This persecution that we see uh, Saul being a part of in Acts chapter 8. Acts chapter 8 verse 1, it says, On that day... Great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem, and all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. So in this time, the Jewish Christians are being drugged out of their homes, are being arrested, are being beaten, they're being kicked out of cities, they're even being killed. This comes right on the heels of Stephen's death, where Saul approved all of it. So this is the context that... that James is writing into. This is people that are suffering for their faith. 
They're being forced to leave their homes, their jobs, their livelihoods, their place of comfort, and they are being forced to go out into an unknown world. But look at what Acts 8 verse 4 says happened with these people that were scattered. It says that those who had been scattered preached the word wherever they went. Now, how is this possible? If someone is forcing me out of my home, is threatening my life and my family's life, is making me lose my job, is making me uproot everything and leave, my attitude is probably not going to be the greatest. I'm probably going to be wondering why I'm going through such a thing or be angry at the people that are persecuting me. But this says that the people that were scattered, those early believers, they were going about preaching the gospel wherever they went. How are they able to do this? How are they able to keep going? I think the answer lies in their focus. Their minds were focused on what was truly important. But let's face it, even the strongest Christian struggles. Nobody is perfect. We all have times where we wonder, where we doubt, where we have fear, where we have worry. How could these Christians do this when they face such difficult times? Well, I think James's first words of encouragement shed some light on this. He tells us that we need to take control of our thoughts. Because our thoughts are the battlefield where the war is going to be won or lost. Our attitude leaning into a situation, the way we react, the words we say, all that starts with the thoughts that we think. So he says you need to take control of your thoughts. Well, how does he say that? Well, let's look at verse 2. He starts with the word consider. Consider it pure joy. Now, what does it mean to consider? It means to think. It means to align your mindset, to change the way you're thinking. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. And let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. All these trials, all these things that we face in life, these are tests of our faith. They are things that are meant to strengthen us, to make us more like Jesus. Now think about it like this. A lot of us wonder, well, why do we have to even go through trials? Why can't life just be easy? If you're a runner that's preparing for a marathon, is the goal just to cover that distance in the fastest time possible? Because if it was, couldn't that marathon runner just take the easy way out and jump in their car and drive to the finish line? I mean, that would accomplish the goal. I'm going to start at the starting line. I'm just going to drive there. I'll get there in like, you know, five minutes or whatever, ten minutes. It'll be done. I could sit there with my window down, listening to the radio, drinking a Coke and eating a cheeseburger, having the good old life. But that's not the goal. The goal is to test yourself, to endure the hardship of the race to be able to accomplish it, to be able to make it to the end. Think about it like this. Why do people go to school? Why do they try to attain degrees? 
It's because they want to challenge themselves. They want to learn in that field that they're going for. They want to prove their ability. If they just handed out a degree to you that meant absolutely nothing, it wouldn't prove that you had any ability at all. Well, God gives us supernatural ability. Supernatural ability through his spirit that we can find joy in tough times because he's at work in us striving to make us mature and complete. It's just like how a parent wants their child to grow and learn, and sometimes that means letting them make mistakes. That means letting them feel the consequences of their actions. It doesn't mean always protecting them and making them live inside of a bubble. They need to experience these things so that they can grow. And we can't comprehend sometimes how God is working with our natural minds. It doesn't make sense, the things that we go through. How could God possibly work good through the situation I'm in? Well, this is where we have to take control of our thoughts, and we have to put aside human wisdom, and we have to seek godly wisdom. Because godly wisdom is the key to change. Godly wisdom is the key to change our thoughts, our hearts, our lives, our response, our attitude, our families. It is godly wisdom That is the key. James continues in verse 5. He says, If any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God, who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to you. Pause right there for a second. That is an amazing promise. If you lack godly wisdom, you can ask God for it. And he says God will give it to anybody Without finding fault. That means that all those excuses that we have to say, well, God can't use me. God won't work through me. I'm I'm too messed up. I've got this past. I've done this. I've done this wrong. This says God will give it to you without finding fault if you ask him. But when you do, you must believe and not doubt. Because the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea blown and tossed by the wind. He should not expect anything. From the Lord, because that person is double minded, unstable in all that he does. We must believe and not doubt. One of my favorite things about James is the word pictures that he paints. He uses these metaphors that it just makes sense to me. It it helps me to understand these concepts. He says, if you ask and doubt, you're just like a, a ship on the sea being tossed and blown by the wind. Whatever you're feeling one day, that's what's guiding you that day. You feel something different the next, you guide, you're guided differently the next. You know, I love mountaintop experiences. I love those special events in our life. I love the church camps. I love the retreats. I love the, the Christian concerts. I love the special services that we have around Easter and Christmas when we celebrate these, these, these uh, beautiful things, these wonderful things, these powerful things of faith. Christ's birth and his death and resurrection. I love those things. But if I were to condense that all into a time frame in the year, we're talking at maybe, what, two or three weeks out of the year with all the camps, retreats, concerts, and special services. If that is all I'm living for, two weeks out of 52 weeks of the year, If all I'm saying is, well, I just wish that it was like it was at that one service. I just wish I felt the same way I did five years ago 
at that camp or at that retreat or at that men's conference or that women's conference. If that's what our faith is, that faith will not sustain us. Our faith has to be a daily faith. We have to ask God for that wisdom daily. And it says he will supply it for us. I love all those things, but we cannot just live on those mountaintop high experiences. We have to be guided every single day. So this means that we need God's wisdom. And here are some practical ways that we can have God's wisdom. James goes on to tell us in verse 9. He says, Believers in humble circumstances ought to take pride in their high position. But the rich should take pride in their humiliation, since they will pass away like a wild flower. What James is basically saying is humility is the key. Christian life should be marked by humility because our life is not in view of comparing ourselves to others or what we think our life should be. Our view of life should be compared to Jesus Christ. And we are all unworthy. We are all sinners, but we are all saved by grace if we have put our trust in him. So the first thing we can do to have godly wisdom is always be humble. If you're in a high position, if things are going good for you, if you've got all the money you need in the bank and things are looking good, don't take pride in that. Look at your stance with God. Be humble. See yourself in light of the cross. If you're in a low position, you're struggling, you're hurting, you don't know where things are coming from, don't compare yourself to others and say, woe is me. Rejoice that it's in those humble circumstances that your faith grows. Because when we have everything that we think we need, a lot of times we don't ask God. We don't trust God. We don't turn to God. So if you're in a low situation and all you've got is trusting in God, that's actually a pretty good place to be. Because that's how we should all be, trusting in God every single day. He goes on in verse 12 to say, Blessed is the one who perseveres under trial, because having stood the test, that person will receive the crown of life that the Lord has promised to those who love him. The next thing we can do, first one was be humble. Second one, press on in love. Remember God's love for you. Remember your love for him. God loves you and has given you a great promise that if you press on through the trials of life to the goal, you've got the crown of life waiting for you. So, if you find yourself lacking love, go back to your first love. If you find yourself struggling in this area, remember what led you to Christ to begin with. Press on through the trials and seek him in love. Because going back to our old way of life, our old way of thinking, the old sin that used to ensnare and entangle us is not the way to live. That would just be wrong. So, press on. Verse 13. Now when tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor 
does God tempt anyone? But each person is tempted when they are dragged away by their own evil desire and enticed. Then, after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is full grown, gives birth to death. Don't be deceived, my dear brothers and sisters. I think the next thing that James teaches us when we face these trials and these difficult situations and we need godly wisdom, we have to be humble. We have to press on in love. And we cannot let emotion blind us. Because that's what happens. Anybody ever been blinded by emotion? Where you just got enraged or just impassioned about something and you were not in your right mind. I've been there. I've done that. You ever want to see that happen? Go to a sporting event. You ever really want to see it happen? Go to a youth sporting event. And I've been guilty of that sometimes too because when he deals with my kids, I get, I get excited. I get fired up. But parents getting kicked out of youth sporting events is a growing trend. And that's really pretty sad to say. You know, there are rules in place that you're not allowed to talk to the coach for 24 hours after the game because parents have abused that. They have sat there and just berated these coaches, a lot of whom are volunteers, most of whom are in youth sports, because they've let their emotion control them and blind them. And this happens to us when we face trial. Because it's natural for us to throw that pity party and say, woe is me, and think, God, why are you doing this to me? I mean, if God allows it, that means he must want this to happen. This is what he's causing me to do. If God could stop this, he would. So why doesn't he? We ask all these questions, and we start wondering and, and asking, God, why, why are you picking on me? Why are you doing this to me? And we put a lot of blame on God. We say that God has become our enemy. But this is not who God is. God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. Our temptations come from our own desires. And sometimes the hardship that we face is the result of the process of sin in our lives. And facing that pain might be the wake-up call we need to remove that sin. James says it like this. Here's the pattern. We have a sinful desire. That's in us. We desire things. There are things that are tempting to you that aren't tempting to me and vice versa. Things that I struggle with that you don't struggle with. We have that desire in us. And that then we are tempted to sin. That temptation gives birth to sin. That sin then grows in our life and it leads to death in every sense of the word. Spiritual death by separating us from God emotional death by numbing us to the power of sin in our lives, relational death by affecting those that we love the most. All kinds of death and destruction come from the sin that we let grow in our life, and that causes a lot of the pain that's in our life as well. And when our emotions rule our minds, we get deceived. God is not our enemy. In fact, God is looking for our good. Let's continue to read. 
Verse 16 and 17, don't be deceived, my dear brothers and sisters. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of the heavenly lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. Finally, what godly wisdom means is that we remember who God is, that he is good, and that he is the giver of good gifts. God is good, and he is the giver of good gifts. Another wonderful word picture in James says that God is the father of the heavenly lights and he does not change like shifting shadows. God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And he is good. Remember a couple months ago we talked about why we should let God lead us in our lives. And we said it's because he's a good father who desires to give good gifts to his children. That is still true A couple of months later, as we're going through this scripture, God is good. And he wants good for us. But remember, to God, what's good for us is what shapes us to be more like his son. Our last verse, verse 18. He chose to give us birth through the word of truth that we might be a kind of first fruits of all he created. Now, this one is important. They're all important, but I want you to take this one home. God chose you to be the example. God chose you to be the example. What does it mean by it says first fruits? What were first fruits? They were the first things that were produced. They were the best of the crop. They were the things that were worthy of being presented to God. When we come to God in faith, when we present our lives to him through repentance, confession, and baptism, God chooses to adopt us as his children, and we become a first fruits. That means that we are the ones chosen to display what it means to be a Christian. doesn't mean we're better than anybody else. Don't hear me saying that. I'm not saying that. Christians are not better. They're not more valuable, whatever. They, they are not that. We're all sinners saved by grace. But because God has saved us and God has given us his spirit, we are chosen to be the example in this world. You should be the best example of the life God has called every person to. Your attitude should be the best example. Your walk should be the best example. The words you say should be the best example because people aren't going to read the Bible They're going to read you. They're going to see what your faith says. Does your faith really work? And you can quote scriptures to them, but if your life doesn't support that, they're going to say, well, what good is that? You're no different than anybody else. In fact, your attitude kind of stinks. And if that's the way Christians are, then I don't want to be that way. Our approach to life should be the best example of what Christ can do in this world. We have that responsibility. We should have joy coming out of us because our world desperately needs that. We live in a world that likes to talk about superheroes. In fact, if you've seen any movie in probably the last 20, 30 years during the summer, it was probably a superhero movie. They've been all over the place. The the whole Marvel Cinematic universe has been expanding for a decade now. 
And it's just, you know, there's all these superhero movies. There's all these things going on. And people love those stories of heroes. Well, listen to a few quotes I found from Stan Lee, the creator of Marvel Comics and a lot of these heroes. He said, there is only one who is all-powerful, and his greatest weapon is love. He says in one of his comics that the power of prayer is still the greatest ever known in this endless, eternal universe. And, of course, one of Stanley's most famous quotes, with great power comes great responsibility. Now, that's a Spider-Man quote. I love Spider-Man, but, you know, it's deeper than a comic book because we've been given great power. If you're a follower of Christ, you have God's spirit within you. And you have God's calling on your life. And you have a mission to reach out and to seek and save the lost, as we talked about uh, earlier in one of the meditations. That is powerful. But we have that responsibility, too, to be the example, to set the stage for people to know Christ. They will look at you, and they will see your deeds, and either give glory to God in heaven, or they'll turn away from him. You may be the only example of Christ that people see. We should take that responsibility seriously. Because God could have sent angels every single day. God could send angels every day to every person you know, every co-worker, every family member. God could have just sent his angels to reveal himself to them, and they would be overwhelmed by the power of God. But he didn't. Jesus could come back. He could live on this earth even today physically. He could have just never ascended to heaven and just still be walking the earth after 2,000 years. He's God. But he didn't. He ascended to heaven and he sent his spirit to empower his people. That's you and that's me. He sent us to be the example. What kind of example are we leading? How are we leading people to the Lord? What does our attitude show? What does our perspective tell others about our faith? Does our faith work? I believe it does. Do you? Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you that you have given us a powerful faith. And it's not in our strength or our power, but it's in the power of Christ Jesus, the only one who can save, the only one who can change lives, the only one who can bring dead hearts to life. God, may we never forget the power that we have. And God, may we be that example of you. I pray for each of us here, Lord, because we all need this. I need this. I need this reminder that it's you who leads and it's me who follows. So God, would you be with us here today? Help us to follow you more closely in everything we say and do. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.